All right, ladies, like I mentioned, we're going to the cross. Um, I didn't think we could talk about Jesus without talking about the cross. Amen. There's no greater act of love uh, demonstrated than when Jesus laid his life down for us. But let's just pray. Uh, God, we just love you so much. And um, we see your love for us in the love that you have for your son, that you would send him as a sacrifice. Can't even imagine doing that with my own children. But, Father, you sacrificed your only son because you did not want us to pay the penalty of sin. And so, Father God, I, it's an it's a age-old story. We might say, oh, I've heard this so many times before. But, God, I pray you would open new understanding and revelation because we will never ever fully know or understand the depth, the height, the width, and the length of your love. And I pray, Lord, that you would just open our eyes in a brand new way this morning. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Is that okay to pray like that? <laughs> you know what it reminds me of? There's a, I think it's a allergy medicine commercial. <laughs> And I'm, I'm not doing any kind of sponsorship here. But, you know, it's like you see he's, this person is, you know, just outside. And all of a sudden they go, and they rip like a, a, a film that was really causing them to see the world in kind of a darkened place. And now it's everything is like, oh, you know, it's fresh, it's new. It's the real deal. And I think sometimes we need that, especially if you've walked with the Lord for a long time, to say, God, I need a fresh revelation of this. Because I don't pretend to know it all. I don't pretend to understand it all. And I always say, if, if, if we'll never find the full height, length, width, and depth of his love, then there's a lot more that we need to know and to experience. And so that's my prayer for us this morning. And I, I'm just, I was telling the girls here, I'm kind of a puddle inside this morning because I'm just so, uh, once again, reminded of that love. He, he, Jesus did it for love. But what he endured, it, it, it makes my skin crawl. But he did it. For us, And I'm not going to try and get gross with you this morning, but I think it's important to have um, a, a reality check that Jesus knew what he was going to go through, and yet he chose to do it. And so now I have to go rewind just a minute, because I felt really bad last week that I left you without the five most important words. <laughs> On your worksheets last week, we were talking about the woman who was healed with the issue of blood, and then Jairus, who had come to Jesus and said, please come, and if you come and lay your hands on my daughter, she will live. Well, we didn't get to Jairus. We, we finished the, the woman with the issue of blood. And so there were a couple things on our worksheets, and I, and I don't want to go back through everything, but I think it's very important to talk about Jairus and finish that part of the story because Jairus had come to Jesus. His daughter lay on her deathbed. And so he made his faith statement, like I just said, that if you will come uh, and lay your hands on my daughter, she will live. 
Well, in the meantime, Jesus is having a hard time moving through this throng of people. We talked about that. And then a woman reaches out and makes a withdrawal on his power and is completely, totally, instantaneously healed. And so Jesus stops, and he addresses a woman. Now, put yourself in Jairus' shoes. He's saying, oh, my goodness. Of course, somebody has to talk to Jesus, and I asked him to come to my house. My daughter's lay, laying on her deathbed. Hurry, Jesus. Come on. Can't you just kind of just, you know, keep moving, keep moving? There, that feeling of desperation. But Jesus takes the time to address the woman and tells her that she has great faith. And all she did was touch his clothes. But her faith statement was, if I just reach out and touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And we talked about how important that faith statement is. Okay. While they're still talking, messengers come from Jairus' home. And they said, don't bother the teacher. We're really sorry, but your daughter is dead. She's died. Now, it says that Jesus overheard these messengers, and I love what Jesus did. I believe he swooped in, and he got this close to Jairus and said, Do not be afraid. Only believe. He says, Come on, Jairus. Right here. Right here. Don't think about what you just heard. Remember your faith statement. And what Jesus was saying is, don't stop believing. And you know what fear will do? Fear will rob you of your faith if you let it. In the natural, it was too late. But Jairus had already said, if you will come to my house, my daughter will live. And Jesus says, I'm still going to your house. Jairus, do not be afraid. Only believe. And you know, James 1 says, we can ask God for wisdom, but don't ask doubting because you will be like a reed being tossed to and fro in the wind. You know, first I believe, now I don't believe. Oh, I'm afraid. Now I'm not afraid. He says, he says you need to pray doubting nothing. That's an only belief. How do we get there? Well, I think... That, that comes by revelation of the Holy Spirit. It is an act of our will to agree more with the word of God than the bad news, our circumstances, the symptoms in our body, what we've heard, what we've been told, what we once believed. You can let not your heart be troubled talked about that verse as well. And neither let it be afraid. We are empowered to do that. And I say with the help of the Holy Spirit. And begin to declare it, begin to receive it. Say, God, in your mighty name, I am choosing right now to not be afraid. Spirit of fear, you just go away in Jesus' name. Spirit of peace and love and comfort and power, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, I'm listening to you. And I'm making a choice. And sometimes we feel like we're so overrun by our emotions, but that's a choice, ladies. That's a choice. And we can take thoughts captive. The Word of God says you can. And then you make them line up with the Word of God, and you say, okay, that's a lie. Get out of here. I'm going to replace it with the truth of the Word of God. But, you know, I also understand gripping fear. Oh, no. 
<laughs> the other morning I woke up. Uh-oh, see if I can remember what the Holy Spirit said. And I just had this really weird little thing running through my mind. And I'm not a rapper, but I heard this like, okay, not going there because um, I can't do it. And I heard him say, spirit of fear, you got no grip on me because the Holy Spirit's made my heart slippery. And it was like, <laughs> and it went on. <laughs> but I just had, I just laughed. I thought that's so cool. Because at one point in my life, I understood what gripping fear was. Gripping fear that was paralyzing. And it was a spirit that I had allowed that much influence, that much territory in my emotions, it could grip me. But I walked out, praise God, knowing that God is greater than the fear, because fear negates faith. And I really do believe that had Jairus given into the bad news and the spirit of fear that wanted to grip his heart, had he not resisted it, I don't know if we would have seen the same result. Because Jesus was saying, come on, Jairus, I need your cooperation here. Do not be afraid. Only believe. And we're not perfect in our belief. But you know what? We focus on that rather than, I don't know if I have enough faith. The Bible says you've been given the measure of faith. You've got it. Exercise it. Choose it over the fear. And you know, we, we said this last week, um, fear will always lie to you. And it's a prophet, it's a prophet sent, an evil prophet sent to give you a negative report of your future. So had Jairus thought, oh, it's too late. In the natural, it looked like there was no hope. But Jesus said, stay with me, Jairus. Stay with me. It would have been a good time for Jesus to say, I am the resurrection and the life. But he didn't. He was. He is. But Jesus knew what was going to happen. And so, again, Jesus is once again demonstrating exactly what was going to happen on the cross and what we get to walk in, a power greater than death. Jesus overcame death. And so we're walking to Jairus' house. And they get there, and the professional funeral mourners were already there. Can you believe it? Would, how would you like that job? Show up at the door of every person, you know, who has just had a death in the family and, and play your instruments and wail and moan. Kind of crazy. But that's what they were doing. They had already started the funeral. And Jesus ignored them. He took three of his disciples in. And you know the end of the story. Very easily. I don't see, I don't hear Jesus um, shouting. I don't think, think he made a really big show of this. He just simply told the young girl, arise. And she did. Because <laughs> Jesus has power greater than the power of death. And it was the positive power of faith working in Jairus and not the negative force of fear that cooperated with the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I think that is so telling for us. Our faith has something to do with it, ladies. And we have a responsibility to do the let not. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Psalm 112.7 talks about the righteous. Okay, who's righteous in here? Okay, okay, I'll try that again. Who's righteous in here? 
because Jesus has made you righteous. We're going there at the cross today. And it says that the righteous in Psalm 112.7 says that those who are established in right standing with God will not fear bad news. Sometimes, (laughs) it's a nice little chime, but I don't know whose it is. It's in somebody else's prayer. (laughs) She's looking for her phone. She's ringing it up, right? All right. Um, It's okay. We're not going to worry about that. Uh, It says that the righteous will not fear bad news, and his heart is steadfast. (laughs) Don't hurt it. Just try and make it quiet. (laughs) No. Okay. Eyes up here. (laughs) I'm just teasing. The righteous will not fear bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting confidently, relying on and believing in the Lord. Just keep believing. I love that. That's Psalm 112.7. Yeah, it talks about the righteous, those who are established in right standing. And you are when you're covered in the blood of Jesus and you have Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. That makes you righteous. It says he will not fear bad news. And his heart is steadfast, trusting confidently, relying on and believing in the Lord. Okay. Got that off my chest. (laughs) All right. We're going to the cross today. And uh, we're going to be kind of picking and choosing from the Gospels. This time we're actually going to hear from John. We hadn't up to this point. Um, John gives us a completely... uh, different view of things that happened. He includes uh, part of the event that um, the other Gospels do not. So we're going to kind of put them all together. We're going to start in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I don't have a handout for you today, so you're going to have to be really good listeners, okay? (laughs) All right, the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, After Jesus celebrated what we call the Last Supper, um, did the disciples know it was their Last Supper? I don't know. Um, But, you know, that's what we commonly call it. But they were actually celebrating the Passover. It was a a, a holiday and a a meal that they were celebrating together. And um, at that time, Jesus revealed, he even said to them, I am going to be crucified. And they are going to take me away. And it seems like that fell on deaf ears because the disciples are like, when it all started to happen, They didn't know what to do. But Jesus made it very clear. He's a good communicator, right? So now, after supper, we now know that Judas was, uh, Jesus spotlighted him and said that he was the betrayer. Judas leaves. And Jesus takes, again, he kind of had the close uh, threesome of disciples that were with him. And they were Peter, James, and John. Um, I love when you read in John, he calls himself either the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he, he just knows Jesus loved him best. He just knew that. So anyway, we'll hear some of that. But we're reading out of Luke 22, starting in verse 39. And he came and out and went, as was his habit, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he arrived at the garden, he said to them, Pray continually that you may not fall into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away. For me, that would be very close. I'm a terrible stone thrower. Um, And knelt down and prayed. And this is Jesus' prayer. And, you know, I believe we're seeing the side of his humanity. Jesus knew what he was about to go through, and this was his prayer. Father, if, if you are willing, remove this cup of divine wrath from me, yet 
not my will, but always yours be done. You know, Jesus, I don't know that he was giving into a spirit of fear, but it was, I believe he was like saying, God, if there's any other way to save the world, I'll do it. But if this is the only way, then your will be done. And I really just picture that conversation with God the Father just saying, Son, I love you, but I love my people, and you are the only one. You are the only one who fulfilled every part of the law, and you are the only one whose perfect, precious blood could pay the penalty that sin demands. And it demanded death, it demanded sacrifice, and it demanded blood. He says, sorry, son, but you're the only one. And I love this next part because an angel appeared to Jesus, strengthening him. And even in deep agony and anguish, almost to the point of death, he prayed more intently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. But when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Thanks a lot, buddy. Thanks a lot for supporting me here. You know, very few times did Jesus express a need for his disciples because they always needed him. But this time they fell asleep when he needed them most. But it's okay because an angel came and strengthened him. But he did say, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not fall into temptation. And this thing about this uh, sweating great drops of blood, um, I'm not going to say this correctly, but it's an actual, uh, uh, help me. <laughs> it, it's, Thank you. It is, it is a condition. It's a medical condition. Thank you. It's a physical condition. And um, it is because, and it happens when people experience such emotional stress that it literally uh, breaks blood vessels and capillaries, and not vessels, but probably capillaries. Hematidrosis. Did I say that right? Thank you. All right. Um, but this agony that Jesus was going through was a great fight. And don't you know that the devil was trying to short circuit the plan of God and trying to tell Jesus, you can't do this. You can't do this. You don't have to do this. Walk away. You know, this isn't something that you have to do. Why should you do it when nobody else can? But here he is feeling abandoned by those he loved and feeling totally alone. And already been betrayed by one of his closest. Jesus was in a very deep, dark place. And he prayed through. And God strengthened him. And this angel who came, um, it was as if he was like instantaneously recharged. Because then we see... We see that um, he was supernaturally charged like a blast of energy. He was suddenly strengthened and empowered. And now Jesus was ready to face the cross. And anytime we're, we're facing some difficulty, I want to challenge you. Go to your garden and pray. Pray through. Sometimes it's through agony. Sometimes what you're doing is you're fighting every doubt and unbelief that wants to come against you, and you pray through. And I believe God will strengthen you. You will stand up and you will be supernaturally charged because when we're weak, now He can be strong through you. Amen. And so now Jesus is ready to face the cross, and we pick it up in John 18:2. And now Judas shows up, the same guy that Jesus already knew had betrayed him. He knew the place where Jesus often met with his disciples. And so Judas had left the Last Supper and went and rounded up a couple legions, it says, of Roman officers and the high priests and Pharisees. And there they came with lanterns, 
torches and weapons. And we know that by the, the language described here, there were at least 300 up to maybe 600 soldiers, armed soldiers carrying torches and, and fully uh, armed in, in, in their uh, armor and uh, had weapons as if Jesus was a dangerous criminal. And yet he had sat every day in the temple teaching them. He could have been taken at any time. But Judas is making a scene here. And in fact, he was probably afraid that Jesus was just going to kind of go poof, disappear, and they wouldn't be able to get him. Because that had happened several times before. It was not yet his time. He'd walked, the, uh, the uh, people picked up stones to stone him, and suddenly they parted and he just walked out. And a couple times it says, I believe he disappeared. I really do. So... But now it was his time. But Judas was going to make sure that they got him this time. And having obtained the Roman officers, um, there they were, coming to find Jesus. And this is hilarious. Just go with this. So Jesus, knowing now all that was about to happen to him, he meets them. And he says, uh, who are you looking for? And I said, well, Jesus of Nazareth, they didn't even know what he looked like. They didn't even recognize him. And so he, oh, Jesus, he says, I'm he. He said, I am. He said, I am the great I am. And two things that put chills up and down my spine. First of all, he was declaring who he was. I am the great I am. And that revelation was so powerful that all 300 to 600 of those soldiers ended up flat on their backs as if a bomb exploded. And they didn't even know what hit them, but it was a supernatural blast of the great I am. And the other thing that gets to me on that is just say, take me. Here I am. No one took Jesus' life from him. He willingly laid it down, all for you, all for love. That gets me right here. <laughs> so now they're getting up off the ground. He says, well, who are you looking for? Well, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, here, take me. Take me. And Peter, good old Peter, I kind of feel like I might have been Peter. You know, if I were there, he takes a sword, he's going to be valiant, and he's trying to defend his master, and he cuts off a guy's ear. Oops, you know. Uh, and Jesus, about to be gone, uh, starting the road to the cross, he picks the ear up and he heals it. Oh, the love of Jesus. Okay, okay, are we ready now? Can we go now? And they bound him, and they took him away. And he said to Peter, he's Peter, Peter, says, you don't understand. In, in my own words, he say, I have to drink this cup, so it's okay. I know you want to defend me because you love me, but I'm doing this because I want to. It's really what he was saying. Shall I not drink the cup from which my father has given me? At first he said, God, Father, can you take this cup from me? Is there another way? And now he says, I'm ready to drink the cup. And it was going to evolve suffering and he knew it he knew everything that was going to happen at this time 
And yet he willingly surrendered and went with them. John 10, 17, 18 says, For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my own life so that I may take it back. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down voluntarily. I am authorized and have power to lay it down and to give it up. And I am authorized and have power to take it back. This command I have received from my Father. He volunteered, ladies, to take our place. He did it for love. In fact, he even told um, Peter, he says, don't you understand that I could call 20 legions of angels at any time and they would come rescue me? And do you know that at any time during this road to the cross, he could have done the same? But he chose. He chose. He chose to die. He chose to become sin for us. John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Did you hear what he called you? He calls us friends. And he laid his life down for us. So they arrest Jesus. And now begins begins the biggest kangaroo court, the biggest mistrial, the greatest injustice that ever has happened, ever recorded. And the Pharisees and scribes were so bent on killing Jesus that they did and they, his hatred, their hatred was so great that they began to break their own laws in order to make this happen. And they first they took him to the Jewish high priest, um, Annas, and he didn't know what to do with Jesus, but they began to decide how they were going to charge him. And they would ask him, who are you? And Jesus says, well, if you don't know who I am, ask the people who have been listening to my teachings. And they didn't like that. <laughs> and they began to hit Jesus even here. These were church leaders and these were his own people. And the hatred was so great. Number one, it was against their Levitical law to strike a person who was accused and they were hitting him. And second of all, um, it was against their laws to do anything after the sun went down and it was night because they had torches, right? So they didn't care. They didn't care. All of a sudden, their own laws were not important because all they wanted to do was kill Jesus and what happened there. Then they ended up taking him to Caiaphas, another Jewish high priest, and they questioned him about his teaching. And Jesus is saying, I always taught publicly in the temple. Ask those who listened who I am. And Matthew 26, 27 says that then they spat in his face and struck him with their fists. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ the Messiah anointed. Who hit you? Okay, can you imagine the humiliation and the shame that he was going through? Church leaders spitting in Jesus' face, which even in their culture was like the worst possible thing that you could do to humiliate someone and to exercise hatred toward them. And there could have been more than 100 or more religious leaders, and they line up and they spit in his face, and they beat him with their fists. (sighs) It's unfair. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. But 1 Peter 2.23 says, While being reviled and insulted, he did not revile or insult in return. He didn't protect himself. He didn't defend himself. But while suffering, he made no threats of vengeance, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges fairly. He knew this was going to be totally unfair. But he kept his eyes on his father who judges fairly. So now they still didn't know what to do with him, but actually they did. See, because Jews could not, they could, 
could have settled this. They could have killed Jesus according to their own custom, their own laws. But their laws uh, said that this person should be stoned. Well, they didn't want to stone him. They wanted Jesus to suffer. All the while not realizing that they were fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And was God forcing men to hate? Was God forcing Judas to betray? Was God uh, stirring up hatred so that Jesus could end up at the cross? No. No. But Jesus, uh, uh, God knew in advance how men were going to act and how the devil was going to stir this up. So no, Jesus knew that it was going to be bad because the devil had tried many times to take him out. But it was still fulfilling prophecy. It's just a beautiful way that everything works together. Amen? So they wanted him crucified. But Jews didn't crucify. They didn't hang and punish people on the cross. But the Romans did. So now they take him to Pontius Pilate, who was a Roman ruler uh, in uh, Jerusalem only because they were celebrating Passover. And they were, the, the Romans ruled over the Jews, and there had been uprisings, there had been riots, and they were there to police their Passover, making sure there was no trouble in the city. So they knew that, and they bring him, uh, Jesus, to um, the Roman ruler Pontius Pilate. And Pilate says, he questions Jesus, so are you the king of the Jews? That's what they're saying that you said. They're calling that blasphemy, but are you really the king of the Jews? And I love Jesus. He said, are you asking because you believe it? Or are you just asking because others are saying this? And Pilate gets offended. He says, I'm not a Jew, but your own people and their chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done to deserve death? And Jesus answered him, in truth, but not directly answering him. He says, my kingdom is not of this world, nor does it have its origin in this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting hard to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. Here's something I didn't know. Under Roman law, an accused person had three chances to give a direct answer to the question, to defend themselves. Jesus refused to defend himself three times. And so Pilate is saying, don't you understand? Do you not understand that I have the power to kill you? And you just did strike three. And this, I'm not going through every time that he questioned him. But Jesus was being interrogated, and three times he refused to directly answer Pilate, and the third time he became silent. He did not say a word. And this is prophesied in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Wouldn't you want to defend yourself? But no, Jesus was on the cross, uh, on the road to the cross. And, and he could have said, angels, and it would have been all over. Or the angels would have come and rescued him. So maybe he's just, I just better be quiet, because I've got to get to the cross. I've got to get to the cross. And also, for the Jews, hanging on a cross was the ultimate curse. Um, Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, which is the cross. So 
the curse is spelled out in Deuteronomy um, 28, and it's every kind of sickness imaginable. And then as if, uh, as if the uh, writer was a, a little bit concerned that maybe I missed one or maybe there will be new diseases and sicknesses, he says, and every other sickness and disease that can ever be named. So the curse is sickness. And Jesus became a curse for us so that you do not have to suffer under the curse of physical sickness. But Jesus went to the cross suffering the humiliation and the shame that came with it. Oh, now Pilate comes back to the Jews and says, I don't see why you would want to kill him. I don't find any guilt in him. He is so trying to not kill Jesus. And then they all shout. He says, well, why don't I just release another prisoner in his place? And I, 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 how about Barabbas? He picked Barabbas because Barabbas was a really bad dude. And he probably thought, oh, they're not going to choose Barabbas over Jesus. But they said, give us Barabbas. They still wanted Jesus to be killed. So now they take him to Herod. And so this goes on and on. This is like the biggest kangaroo court ever. Nobody could really pin anything on him. And yet Jew, uh, Pilate goes to the Jewish leaders. Finally, he says, neither Herod nor I find any guilt in this man. And so he says, I'll just beat him and release him. And this time the crowd shouted, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify us an innocent man. Pilate could have killed him just because he wanted to, but he kept trying to defend Jesus because Jesus would not defend himself. And so now Jesus is delivered to be scourged and crucified. And this is where we could get really, really gross. It's often said that Jesus took 39 stripes. That actually, and this is the beating, right? It, that actually is only true of a Jewish flogging. These guys were Romans, and I just have a feeling they didn't count. And a Roman flogging was one of the most terrifying things that anyone could ever go through, and probably most people did not survive. And it was not a common thing to be scourged and beaten and crucified. I mean, come on. But this is how hateful that the people were and how the devil had stirred up hate against Jesus. And they were blunt, thirsty, demon-possessed Roman soldiers, probably two of them, armed with whips with long leather strands. And apparently they were uh, tied at the ends were wire, bone, glass, and metal. And it was designed to rip away the flesh from the body. And they just took turns beating and beating. And the arms of the person being flogged were tied so that they could not defend themselves or protect themselves. Isaiah 52, 14 prophesies of the scourging. It says, just as many were astonished and appalled at you, my people. So Jesus' appearance, and I'm putting Jesus in there because this is a prophecy about him. He was marred more than any man, and his form marred more than the sons of men. He didn't look human. He did not look human. He was beaten beyond recognition, beyond what was even human, and then delivered to be crucified. But as horrific as this seems, again, we go to Isaiah 53, 4, and 5. He says he was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and pains and acquainted with grief and sickness, and like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And we did not appreciate his worth, or have any esteem for him? Are we not seeing this happen? He was totally uh, at the mercy. He was putting himself at the mercy, mercy of this 
demonic hatred is really what it was. But listen, ladies, surely, for sure, without a doubt, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and pains. Griefs, ladies, is really doesn't cover the full scope of that word because in, in Hebrew it says sicknesses, weaknesses, and distresses. Sicknesses, weaknesses, and distresses. Who among us cannot at least identify with one of those things? But Jesus bore it in his body and carried our sorrows and pains. And this is, this is physical pain. If you're in physical pain this morning, see your pain, see your disease, see your sickness in the body of Jesus because he's going to carry it for us. And yet we ignorantly considered him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. But he, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our guilt and iniquities. The chastisement needed to obtain our peace. Ladies, that's your emotional peace. That is emotional peace. And your well-being, your sense of well-being was also upon him. We talk a lot about taking physical sickness, but he took, he took your stress. He took your unrest. He took your fear. Anything that causes uh, uh, that kind of sorrow. And he took it upon him. And with his stripes that wounded him, we are healed and made whole. Can you just say, I am healed and made whole? got to be like the woman who said, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. It's there. Make a withdrawal. Make a withdrawal because Jesus paid too great a price for us to not enjoy to the life that he died to give us. Actually, the word there, stripes, is really singular because he was so beaten. It was like one mangled stripe on his back. Then again, he was humiliated in front of the soldiers who put a robe on him and a thorny crown on his head, and they beat it into his head. That was a crown of shame and humiliation, the unjust and unfairness. But he said, I'll take it, and I'll take it for you so that you do not have to walk in shame and humiliation. Jesus was led to Golgotha. There's another story there, but let's go. And they pounded nails through his wrists and his feet and hung him on full display. Again, shame and humiliation. And Jesus never did anything but love people, heal people, rescue people. He never did anything wrong. And yet he was hung between two criminals who were guilty. But 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, He who knew no sin, he became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Ladies, we've been made righteous. Oh, my goodness, so undeserved. It's not because we're good enough. It's because of the goodness of God. And because Jesus' obedience has now become our righteousness but here it was 
that God laid on him all of our sin. It was even more than he laid it on him. He became sin, something that was not even in him. But he willingly laid his life down as a lamb to the slaughter. And they even offered him a drink that could help deaden the pain, and he refused it because he was determined he was going to feel everything that this cup that God had given him to do, he would accomplish it without any help. He was going to completely suffer Everything that was coming his way. And on the day that the world showed its greatest hostility toward God and hatred, God demonstrates his greatest act of love by sending Jesus to die in our place. The innocent dying for the guilty. Paying the penalty in full that sin demanded. Because everything that we deserved, God put on Jesus. And everything that Jesus deserved, God has given to us, ladies. And on the cross, we know that Jesus spoke actually seven words, but one that I want that just is so amazing to me. Here he is, brutally mistreated. Nothing fair about the whole thing. It was a farce that he, an innocent man was being killed and murdered. And yet he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Before Jesus died, he had to take care of a very important piece of spiritual business. And he exercised forgiveness to all those who hated him. And this part, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus never called God, God. He always said, my father. Father, forgive them. And now he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I believe this is the moment he became sin. Because when he became sin, our just God had to, forced to, turn his back on his son. And for the first time, Jesus experienced separation from God the Father, whom Jesus had always said, I and the Father are one. I believe. That was the agony that Jesus experienced in the garden that caused him to sweat great drops of blood. I do, because he had never been separated. But see, God had to punish sin, and Jesus became sin. And so the punishment was going on, and Jesus had to turn, or God had to turn his back on his only son. And Jesus cried out, God, why have you forsaken me? So that God would never forsake you. He will never turn his back on you. Because Jesus took it in our place. We deserved it. He didn't. But he laid his life down. He volunteered. He said, I'll do it. And I'll do it for love. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body upon the cross. So that free from sin, we might live for righteousness. We don't deserve that. By his wounds you have been healed. But I'm not going to stay in guilt and shame and condemnation because Jesus says, here, would you partake of this? This is a gift. Isaiah 53.10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. Another one says he delighted to bruise his son because he delights in you because of his love for us. He has put him to grief and made him sick. You know, the timing of this is always so important. I, when, when you see numbers and you see time, I'm not a num numerology person. That's creepy. But 
It is important to know that Jesus, and it tells us the third hour, the, the sixth hour, whatever. Jesus was nailed to the cross at nine in the morning because he had been run through the, the, the court system all night long. Beaten, scourged, humiliated, spit upon, hit with fists, pounded the crown of thorns into his head. And now it's nine in the morning and they nail him to the cross. And we know he hung there all day long. At noon, it went dark. You can't have something happening in the supernatural that does not physically affect what's going on in the world. This was pivotal. This was the turning point in the world, in the history of the world, what was happening on the cross that day. And all of creation reacted and responded. But Jesus, looking up to heaven, Knowing that all now was finished. What was he finished doing? Paying the penalty for us. Taking our sin. Taking our sickness. He looked up to heaven. He said, it is finished. And it says he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Nobody took his spirit from him. He didn't die until he was good and ready to die. He didn't die until he was finished. He completed the work at the cross and he released his spirit. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Temple lambs were sacrificed twice a day. And they simply covered the people's sins. And that, that's why they repeated sacrifices. They were sacrificed at 9 a.m. and 3 in the afternoon. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was nailed to the cross at 9 in the morning. And finished, released his spirit at 3 in the afternoon. Jesus is truly the final sacrifice the Lamb of God.